Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello, Thinklings listeners. Want to give you that first little blurb to let you know what's in the episode. If you don't have a full 40 or 45 minutes, listen to the whole thing. We open up with books and business and our intro discussion, and that lasts about 23 minutes, uh, including this introduction. So if you want to just skip ahead to like 23, 24 minutes, you'll get to the main content of the episode, which is titled, Is a Picture Really Worth a Thousand Words? We talk about that. Uh, In books and business, I, Charlie, talk about Refuting the New Atheist by Doug Wilson. Thinkling Stearns talks about Surprised by Oxford, written by Carolyn Weber, and Thinkling's Tim talks about the compilation history of the Megalote, and uh, we have some uh, fun jokes and announcements and things in there too. But uh, like I said, that lasts for about 23 minutes. So if you jump to like 23, 24 of the episode, that should get you to the main content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast episode number... 49. I like how we can actually remember what episode we're on right now. It's very professional. You know why that is, Tim? Do you know why I knew it was 49? Yeah, I do. It's because we just recorded episode 50. And it is so awesome. And we have have something really great for episode 50. We have a special guest. But this episode's awesome, too. This episode's great. This episode's great. We'll get to that in a moment. But just episode 50. It's going to be so good. That's a big deal. You turn in 50, that's half to 100. You know, it is, it is, and so it's like we we wanted to get a nice guest for that would embody episode fifty, and we found a real spicy oh, guest. We're so excited! So, yeah, fun times. It is fun. What's next? Instagram. That's what's next. Janky oh. lamps. Come Let's on. Let's talk about the janky lamp. So, mm, janky, I'm so excited. Janky lamp update. We are at 178 Instagram followers, and when we get to 200, we will give out a whole bunch of things. We'll give out some mugs. We'll give out some t-shirts. We will give out maybe a book or two. And then we will give out a lamp. And uh, we were talking earlier, that lamp has traveled with me for probably about 10 years. I had it in college, in my dorm room. It's lived in multiple apartments, in multiple cities. And its last life, before we retired it, was it was the lamp of the Thinklings. It sat right here at this table and... In a very poor way, illuminated the the recording studio, which is why we're now willing to give it to you, one of the fans, uh, because it serves a better better purpose in giving you a uh, Thinklings trinket than uh, actually lighting the room. But uh, did you have something you wanted to say about that? Well, I was going to say, so, so literally when you were in Greek with me and then later when you were in Hebrew with Tim, you probably used that lamp to do homework at times. Yeah, I did. Man, that lamp has so much history. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's it's got a lot of good stuff there. Um, yeah. So before we do that, we need to get to 200 Instagram followers, 178. Here's the deal: if you already follow us on social media, if on Instagram, you need to message your friends and be like, "Hey, you need to go like this podcast," and they might give you a lamp, and that's okay if you don't want it. But when they give it to you, then you can give it to me. You say that to your friends. You're increasing your lamp odds by getting your friends to to jump in on that. Yeah, as so, long as they buy into it. Yeah, as long, yeah. They might want the lamp. They might want the lamp. I, I've actually, I got a text message from someone who followed us on Instagram that said, I better get that lamp. Someone wants it. 
And so Sorry, I shouldn't sound so surprised about that. Well, <laughs> Here we are trying to hock the lamp, and I'm like, I think, really? Oh, Someone this wants is, that? This is probably <laughs> worth mentioning, too. We're probably going to do a Facebook Live for when we give those things away. So, again, you know, how do you participate in a Facebook Live? Uh, I don't know if we should do a Facebook Live or an Instagram Live. Probably Facebook. We have more people that follow us on Facebook currently. Um, but we will have some type of a live format where we're going to like pull names for that. And so you want to stay tuned to when we do that. Cause we want you, well, if, if you're one of the 200, it's an Instagram thing. So it needs to be on Instagram. We should probably do it on Instagram. Yeah. So if we have 200 followers on Instagram, we want all 200 to be like watching that and be like, oh, do I win the lamp? You know, that'd be great if we could get all, you know, over a hundred people watching an Instagram live. I don't know. We, we should make an Instagram real. We should make one of those little funny videos that they make, you know, that all the Instagram influencers hey, make. You guys are in charge of social media. If I touch it, it bombs. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, look into, we'll look into a reel. Okay, so with that, we've got some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. And I'll go first. And the book that I would like to talk about is by Doug Wilson. It is Refuting the New Atheists. A Christian Response to Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins. And the title says it all. It is a Christian response to three uh, notable new atheists. And uh, my first interaction with new atheists was when I was subbing for Andy Stearns a few years ago in his apologetics class. And he referred to them as the four horsemen. And I just realized like right before this discussion, that that wasn't just a clever uh, title that Andy gave them, that they actually self-proclaimed themselves as yep. the, the four horsemen of new atheism. Uh, but yeah, uh, Doug Wilson walks through their books with very specific chapter references, and it's it's written as a response to them. So it reads like he's expecting them to read what he's writing. So it, it reads very easy. It's very pithy, like Wilson always is. But he makes some good points. Like, uh, for example, chapter one, he's uh, responding to Sam Harris's, is it a letter to a Christian nation? Yep. And that's the title of Harris's work. And in which, uh, or when, when Harris wrote that, or either in that, Harris is commenting about responses he as an atheist received from Christians. And he makes the point that man, these Christian responses aren't really Christian, and he's kind of morally degrading Christians for the way that they're acting. And Wilson makes two points on that. He first says, yeah, I agree with you. Christians shouldn't act that way. That's hypocrisy, and it's wrong. Point number two, where do you get your moral standard for why that's wrong, Sam Harris? Because you're a materialist and a new atheist, and there's nothing out there. We're just blobs of goo. So who cares if a Christian sends you a naughty email? Like you shouldn't care about that because morality doesn't exist. And so you can see there's the pithy, but he's also making a very good point, which is how does someone from a materialist uh, standpoint or a new atheistic standpoint make a grounds for morality, uh, which is a very common discussion in, in apologetics. And when somebody's a jerk to even an atheist, all of a sudden they want there to be a ground for morality so that they are not treated unjustly. Yep. And, we, and we should say it's not a ground for morality. They have morality. It's a ground for objective morality that applies to other people too. So all atheists yeah. have a moral code. The question is, why does that moral code apply to anyone other than themselves? Mm -hmm. 
It's yeah. very hard to escape subjectivism. That's a, that's a good that's a good clarification from our apologetics guy. Boom. And I, I will just preface, you know, a, a lot of my comments in this realm are really, you know, I'm I'm a novice. You know, I'm not I'm not really a well read apologetically, and I'm trying, obviously, trying to get into that vein of literature. Um, but yeah, so Andy probably knows way more on that than I do. Um, but you'll you'll enjoy the book. It reads very easy. Um, and uh, gives you a nice response to some common arguments uh, of the new atheists. So uh, I'm not going to rate it because I haven't finished it. I'm just about halfway into chapter two, but uh, I do like it. Uh, I trust Wilson's worldview on many of these issues. And uh, I, I would say if I had to throw an arbitrary rating out early, it'd be in the like three to five and a half-ish range, but maybe it'll get better as the book goes. So yeah, that is uh, Refuting the New Atheist by Wilson. Uh, pretty good book. Well, I'm going to actually stay in the same vein of apologetics, I think. And it's because I'm not finished with my book either. Uh, this week I'm reviewing, or I'm going to talk about Carolyn Weber's book, Surprised by Oxford, a memoir. Uh, she is writing about her time when she was a student in the U.S. and she graduates high school and she got accepted to Oxford University. So she goes over there and she was an atheist and she recalls that when she was in America in high school, she was one of the like, top of her class. She was very smart. Sometimes she'd be like the smartest student in the class. But she says when you get into uh, like a place like Oxford, everybody's the smartest person in the room and you're with all of them at the same time. And so she really met some people who challenged her thinking. And what was surprising to her is that she met someone who was a Christian who had some good questions for her that her worldview couldn't really answer. And so she started asking questions. Now I'm only, oddly enough, I'm only like a third of the way into it, but I'm on page 170. I keep reading this thing thinking, this thing must be almost done. And I just looked because I, I'm sorry, Tim, I got the ebook for like a buck a long time ago. I forgive you. Thank you. I, I love that we have. Feel like Mine we have was to, an ebook too. We have to like do penance with Tim when we buy ebooks. Confessions of Kindle readers. I like this. Yeah. So it was a dollar. So you know. Yeah. Tim doesn't care if he lost that. But here, here's the thing, and that's an actually interesting little comment on Kindles is you can't see the progression. You're just flipping pages, and so this book is 474 pages, and I didn't like realize it. I bought um, a book on Winston Churchill on Kindle that I think Al Mohler read or something and recommended. And it was on uh, a la carte, the Tim Chalice's web uh, blog. He has a la carte listing where he will post books and uh, I thought, oh, I'll buy this thing. So I bought it and that one was 850 pages. I started it and I'm like, man, I'm going really slow. So anyways, this one is a little long so far. It's been really intriguing. And so I'm not ready to rate it yet, but I'm really enjoying it. Now, I'm probably not going to have this done anytime soon. So, listener, this is my, like, fun book that I, if I'm doing something where I can, I got to do one thing. And, I, like, if I'm on the treadmill or something and I'm, like, walking or if I'm off doing something, I'll read this a little bit or right before I fall asleep. But it's not, like, a research book per se. So this might take me a while to finish. You, you read when you walk on a treadmill? I'm trying very hard to learn how. And I have figured it out and it's really great. Well, how did you figure that out? Like, what are, what do you do? So I put, we got a treadmill and I got, went to Menards and that got a That is a prerequisite. Sh- yep. Sorry. For, for reading on a so treadmill. So if you're going to you read on, <laughs> my wife's listening to this, like, you don't walk on the treadmill. <laughs> I no, do. you do. I do. Because I can see when you complete the right. workouts. That's right. We, we have Apple watches. Apple watches synced. So I bought a little tiny shelf and I put it right above the treadmill at eye level and I put my iPad on it. Or I hold the book. 
and you can't do this with a book you're going to take notes on. So I got this book. Um, I, it's like fun literature, but if you're doing that, you can like walk and hold it and, and read. You can't like do, I can't like go like running and do this, but I can walk. And I found that in the morning, like, you know, eat your breakfast and you're kind of like, if you're going to read or something before you leave for work, it's actually a pretty good time to do two things at once. But I mean, I can't do it on a book I'm studying. So that's where this is. So if I'm really busy, I don't read it as much, but so far it's interesting. Now I have some suspicions. Lewis has come up a number of times and the title harkens to Lewis's spiritual memoir, surprised by joy and Lewis's conversion happened while he was at Oxford. So I anticipate she's going to make some sort of a parallel in her own life. I'm not trying to give anything away, but I assume that's what's going to happen in the book, but I'll keep you posted in the future. But surprised by Oxford, Carolyn Weber, so far, really interesting. Awesome. My book today is The Compilational History of the Megalote by Timothy J. Stone. I don't want to throw shade at you, Tim, but your book titles are always... So what's the word? <clears throat> Interesting. So compilational, it's like the order of the Megilote. And the Megilote is the five little scrolls in the Old Testament. So the five scrolls would be Song of Songs, Lamentations, Esther, Ruth, and Ecclesiastes. Okay. Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. Uh, that's the Megilote. Um and so why are they in the order uh, that they are in? And is there a history to that order? So this is kind of an important topic when it comes to discussing canonicity, um, because the, the uh, Jewish rabbis were even debating the order of these books or discussing it. So if they're debating and discussing the order of the books, what does that imply? That the books are important. Yeah, that they're important, that they're part of a canon. They're already recognized as being canonical, and so they're debating and discussing the order of the books. Furthermore, it shows the um, activity of the Jewish rabbis in the, um, in the uh, transmission of the Old Testament and the great care which they had. Um, that they didn't just, they weren't just careful in the transmission of the scrolls. Remember, they were scrolls originally, okay? The transmission of the scrolls themselves, but even the ordering of the scrolls. So, I mean, people have often noted the uh, compositional structure of the book of Psalms with the five books of the Psalter. But here you have five scrolls, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. And Stone in this book argues that they're in a chiastic order. You have Ruth at the beginning and Esther at the end. You have the two ladies. And then in the middle, uh, well, the B points, you have the Song of Songs. And then you have the Book of Lamentations. So you have the best song and the worst song, <laughs> Lamentations. Uh, yeah. The fall of, um, the fall of Jerusalem. And then in the middle, you have Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is kind of the oddball. They don't have a lot of reason why things are connecting to or away from Ecclesiastes. So there's a little bit more uncertainty there, but I thought Stone's argument was pretty strong. Plus, a lot of people believe that the order of these scrolls was something that transpired much later, like 1000 AD, 800 AD, and he argues, no, the tradition for the order of these scrolls actually goes way back. Um, well, I shouldn't say way back, but at least a lot earlier 
Uh, so um, there's a fair amount of Old Testament discussion. Um, there's a um, in the Talmud. There's Baba Batra, and they have a different ordering of the scrolls. And so people think that Baba Batra was the original, and that this is. Uh, a, we talked about this before. We have talked about this before. Because uh, Jason Derushi yes. of uh, Midwestern Seminary uh -huh. comments as a very lengthy footnote on this yeah. in his book, 12 Steps to Understanding the Old Testament. Yeah, I haven't read that footnote, so I'm not sure where he is at uh, in this discussion. I'm sorry, I'm muted. You can probably hear it on that mic. Let me say that again. We've mentioned this before on the podcast because Jason Derushi from Midwestern has a footnote on the Baba Batra in one of his chapters of Old, the Old Testament. When he's about the Old Testament. Yeah, I haven't read that chapter yet, and or that footnote. That'd be really fascinating to see what he has to say about it. Um, the common consensus is Baba Batra is the older um, tradition of the ordering of of these uh, books, but Stone makes a case that no, the the Masoretic text actually reflects in uh, a a more ancient order, and so the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible that we have today. Um, with the scroll of the Megillot, the order that I just described to you, uh, is actually older than the Baba Batra. And the Baba Batra list is stemming from Babylonian uh, Judaism, whereas the Masoretic uh, Hebrew Bible ordering is stemming from Israel and the Palestinian Hebrew Bible. So anyway, it's actually, I've really enjoyed this book. I've got it on interlibrary loan a couple of times, and it's been helpful for me as I've thought through canonicity, uh, canonicity issues and um, uh, the, the relationship between these books, which by the way, there are relationships between these books. I've mentioned before that Ruth it follows Proverbs, and you have the connection of the virtuous woman, and then at the end of Ruth, you have the name the man with a name, Boaz, which connects to the beginning of Song of Songs. Um, and then the transition from Song of Songs to Ecclesiastes is like, nobody can figure it out. But it's like the weird one that they just stuck in the middle. <laughs> or is it the <laughs> pinnacle of wisdom? Because well, it's the no. greatest wisdom in the middle of the well, you have, what's What's the Hebrew word for song? Shir. And it's Shir Sharim. Shir Hasharim, the Song of yeah, Songs. So what's the beginning of Ecclesiastes? Hevel Hevelim. You have the Song of Songs and you have the Hevel of Hevels. So you have a superlative conjunction and that's the connection between the two? As the title, I mean, in the first opening lines. Yeah. By the same author. In wisdom literature. No, well, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. I, I, don't, I haven't heard that argument somewhere. Maybe you can write a dissertation on it, Carter. I mean, I've, I've, well, when I introduced the book, when I preached through it, I've yeah. always said the Song of Song was the greatest song. Yeah. And then here he goes, and this is the greatest problem in life. It's the it's the biggest problem of them all. There you go. And it's it's the same riff, just yeah. a different theme. No, you might seriously be onto something. I haven't heard that proposed. Yeah. Boom. The connection between Ecclesiastes and Lamentations is tough too, but you do have the uh, portion. Yep. And the message in Ecclesi Ecclesiastes is enjoy your portion. Lamentations three. And then you have Lamentations three, where yep. the portion is nothing, and yet they're still trusting in God, even when there's nothing. Uh, Stone does not make that connection. Um, but then also, how tight of a connection should we expect between some of these books? And so, Well, it, even, even specific, I mean, we've mentioned this before in talking about Ecclesiastes. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, belabor the point, but uh, it's very specific that the Lord is mm -hmm. their portion. And everyone knows his mercies are new every morning, but it's right after that, the Lord is my portion. 
when he ha- when he has nothing. Right. He physically has nothing. The city's mm-hmm. gone, but I still have a portion. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the Lord. It's Himself. Yeah. Um, great verses. Yeah. So that's my books and business compilational history of the Megillo. It will not be on sale at the Faith Bookstore. <laughs> if you want to pick up a copy, you can just go to Amazon to get this thing. It's like $96. It's really expensive. I don't even know how to get it. It's wow. printed in Germany. So you can pick it up however you want. I just get it on interlibrary loan. I wondered why, but I see the more Seebeck title, so that makes sense. Yeah. And before we get into the main part of our episode, which... If you've ever heard the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words, mm-hmm. the episode content is us talking about the philosophical underpinnings of that phrase, where it came from, and then maybe dissecting it philosophically. So hopefully you're interested by that. And then is it Tim who shares a devotional mm-hmm. from Deuteronomy yep. to close that off? So uh, you can enjoy that. But it popped into my mind while we were talking that we've been wanting someone to send us a picture of their thinklings group, and someone did that, even though it's not really that. It was good. But Jared yeah. Ball, who, and I will say this very specifically, is on Guam. <laughs> on Guam, <laughs> because it's an island. It's not. He's not in Guam. He's on Guam. That's how they say it. I don't know if that's how it's actually supposed to be said. I, it sounds fine to me. I've heard a lot of people say on Guam. I live in Iowa. Guam. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I'm from Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> But he he uh, he took a bunch of pictures of himself and kind of merged them together around a table. It was really good. As his he is his own thinklings group. So Jared, if that's like a cry for help, like you're you know, I don't know, like you just feel like you're you're not doing so great and you just you're all by yourself. Then hey, we hear you. But uh, if that picture is a, a reflection of your mental state, um, maybe give us a phone call. <laughs> I, and also, I saw that and I thought, oh, that's really funny. It's not exactly what we wanted. It's not. So but like, it is really funny. It gets and like half a point. It disappeared because it was like a story and I couldn't go back and find it. So I really wanted to go back and like. I think he messaged it to us as well. Oh, did he? If he oh. didn't, hey, he should, message he should that post to it or, us. Or send it to us. But we'll still say anyone on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you get a book and you're reading it with a friend and you take a picture, send it to us. Hashtag my thinklings group. No one has done it yet. So anyway, just a thought that popped into my head as we're getting uh, toward the end of our books and business. So anything else before we jump in the content? No, I just, I really do think listener, you should try to read a book with another person. If you've never done it or it's been a while, it's a really good experience. And that's why we're really trying to encourage you to do it. So we're yeah. serious. It's, it's, we're having fun with it, but it's really a, a almost life-changing thing. I would say. It goes something like this. Hey, you know, these crazy guys, I listen to this podcast, they get together and read books. I thought I'd give it a shot. You interested? There you go. Wait, are you calling us crazy, Tim? Yeah, we're crazy. Okay. You know what that sounded like to me? That sounded like a college guy trying to hang out with a college girl. Well, that's hey. Oh, that's you want to read a book with me? That's not books and business. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, enjoy the content. Is a picture really worth a thousand words? We'll see you next week. Okay, so I'd like to have a conversation about a guy by the name of Henrik or Heinrich Isben. Does that name mean anything to either of you? Sounds German. It's been nothing to me. <laughs> it's been nothing. <laughs> okay, so let me let me come at it a different way. Let me let me start with a different approach. How many of you have heard the phrase, quote, a picture is worth a thousand words? Oh yeah. You've that's, heard that? Oh yeah. Now, okay, that is that's a modern like thing that you've 
I would venture to think that you've heard that at least once, if not many times. And it's usually in the context of like a teaching setting where, well, if you can explain it with words, that's good. But you know what? If you could picture it to me, that pictures, its value is of a thousand words. It's like this hyperbolic statement. Have you ever heard someone use it in that context? Yeah. And I, I disagree with that, but yeah, I think and we're gonna we're gonna discuss it. Well, but, it does communicate something. No, so it yes. is saying something. Mm. Yes, it does. So maybe Pictures. not a thousand words, but it's saying some words. So, uh, well, okay, okay. Keep going, so, Charlie. We're about to discuss. What, what we want to discuss here is you've heard us say things like this on the podcast before that authorial intent is important and context is important. And what I want to just dig some dig down, pull some layers back is okay. Where did that phrase? come from and that's where we get to our guy Heinrich Isbin. So Oh yeah, that the, guy. He uh he coined that phrase a picture's worth a thousand words. He did. Oh. <laughs> but his phrase was a little bit you're, different. Okay. So his original prophet. phrase was a thousand words leave not the same deep impression as does a single deed. It's, a thousand words leave not the same deep impression as does a single deed. So he's equating it to actual works, not to a picture. Yeah. So let's let's unpack this a little hmm. bit. Who was Heinrich Isbin? He's a playwright. Okay. So he writes plays, and he is uh, actually, I actually don't have the dates in front of me, but he's in the 1800s. Okay. In that in that realm, I should just you know we have Google. So yeah, Andy's Andy's googling it for me. He's known as the father of realism in the art of uh, in the art of being a playwright. He's one of the founders of the modernism movement in theater. He, as he writes plays, eventually abandons the idea of traditional verse for more of a realistic, realistic prose in his plays. What this means is that rather than having a play that's like this uh, kind of legendary folklore, like idealistic, sensational idea, like the, the knight is the big hero you know, Romeo and Juliet, like the big romance. He's like, you know what? Why don't we write a play that's like a normal situation, like a real life thing that's happening? So he would, uh, he was kind of seen as scandalous because he would present or direct plays that would depict real moral backgrounds behind the facade of modern life. So on the outside, we present life as one thing, but there's actually all this other stuff going on behind the scenes. Like, People aren't really good. They're actually really bad. And so he would present um, plays with more scandalous moral ideas. Hmm. And so what's interesting about him, and you can see where he would make a statement about how the picture is worth more than the words because he's a playwright. He's writing plays. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about him is who he is as a theologian and a thinker. So... uh, one of his friends compa- compared one of his plays to Soren Kierkegaard. Oh, no. And, and so then Isbin kind of gets into this existentialist theology. Mm-hmm. And once he's kind of accused of being very Kierkegaardian, he actually starts to take Kierkegaard more seriously. So the question is, for an existentialist, what does it mean that a picture is <laughs> worth more than the words? So what what is he doing? Let's, so I'm I'm not the the apologist. So like, can we Stearns? Could you give me like a, a layman's definition of existentialism? Sure. 
there, going back in, in the history of philosophy, there is the idea of essentialism. Essentialism says that everything has an essence. And this is not like, this is like when you see a cat, it has the essence of cat. There's something about a cat that makes it a cat. And a dog has not catness, so it can't be a dog. It also doesn't have Everdeen. Anyway, sorry for you Hunger Games fans there. So things have essences, and the, the, the reason existentialism arises is because it says there can't be an essence if everything's an accident. If evolution's true, and this is all an accident, then there's not like an essence I'm trying to become or fulfill. So essentialism says everything has its essence and we need to live that way. Existentialism says, no, everything's dependent on my existence, which is to say it's hugely subjective. It's all about the subject. And so an existentialist, everything is about what I like, what my taste says. I mean, what, and that's why Kierkegaard's so funny. I mean, that, that fits really well. And so think about Heinrich Isbin. He's a modern realist playwright. So what is modernism? And we've talked about modernism on this podcast before. You go back into season two, we had this guest, Dr. Kevin Bowder, and he would use the phrase that pre-modern thinking is that truth is up there. Modern thinking is that truth is out there, but hinted with skepticism. He actually said on that podcast that it's not that, that skepticism is like the rule of the day. Yeah. And so merge that into, so a modern, like is being skeptical of what's out there. Like truth exists, but eh, let's, let's, we're not really sure about things. And then here he is as a realist in his, in his, in his theater. It's like, there's actually a hidden truth that is behind the facade that you don't really see. And then there's this existentialist thing where like my experience and my reality yep. is actually what's more true in a sense than what you think is at the front. And so a couple of ideas merging together here. So with that as the backdrop of the author, the coiner of that phrase, when Isbin says a picture is worth a thousand words, but that's, that's not his wording. It's actually really interesting to track like the, the usage of it and how people like ripped it from him and, and used it in advertising. Really interesting. But to say that a thousand words don't leave the same impression as a single deed, he's actually saying, he's, he's, he's getting into that existentialist modern idea that, you know what? Truth is something different than what you can reason, in a sense. Actually, my experience of reality would bear upon what, you could argue what's true to me with all the words you want, but guess what? My yeah. experience yep. is just as valid. And so when we throw out a phrase like that, what did the author mean when he said that? What did Isbin mean when he said a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, he didn't mean like, oh, this is a good teaching technique, which is how we usually use it today. He would actually take it down the road of, I, I think, and he's, he's kind of seen as a pioneer of modernism in theater. So he, he still believes that truth exists, and he does have some broadly Christian, I think it... I, Depending on how you define Christian, I think you could even define him as a Christian in a, in a, in a broad sense. Theologically, I, I didn't go down the, the wormhole far enough to really categorize him. I'm reading a book on him right now. And, and so, but what I think is interesting is that when he says this phrase, it actually means more about um, 
how the way you feel is more true than and, and what you see in your experience is more true than what you could argue with words, which we as biblicists <laughs> uh, would kind of be like, mm. um, God didn't, hold on. <laughs> God didn't give us pictures. God gave us words. Is yeah, that kind so, of okay, where you're going? There's, there's my thought is I just wanted to kind of throw out, here's this guy, Henrik Isbin, and he, he has this phrase that's attributed to him, which is a picture's worth a thousand words. We lay a backdrop of who he is theologically and philosophically as a thinker. He's a modern, realist, existentialist. In, in the broad strokes there, I don't want to pigeonhole him. That's not fair to him because I've never met him and I can't talk with him and let him reason his own point. You know, Maybe someday I'll, I'll start reading his plays and get into that. But knowing that is his backdrop and, and knowing that that phrase is attributed to him, what do we think about those ideas? So like, I'm going to turn to you guys. What do you think about that? Well, I'll start off with something I say in Introduction to Bible Study class. In that class, we talk about authorial intent quite a bit. And the way I demonstrate um, the importance of that is I put up this um, sculpture and I ask the class to tell me what the meaning of the sculpture is. And it's the, one of the most fun class periods ever because they come up with all these crazy ideas. And then we get to the end and I say, okay, now which one's right? How do we find out? And they always understand, well, you got to find out what the author said. And so when we go and find the title of the piece and even the scripture verse, we then assess our, our analyses or our, our ideas. And you can see where he was going, but I always make this point. Visual art is inherently um, not precise. Yeah, less clear. It's not precise. Yeah, it's less clear. It does a good job at getting like a sense across or an emotion. But if you want to communicate, you don't use pictograms. There's a reason we've moved away from hieroglyphics. You use text because it's much more precise. And I think there's maybe some reason that God gave us a Bible, not a video of, of what's going on. But I will also say this. Um, when we say a picture's worth it, I've said this before I knew anything about this, so this is very intriguing. Um, people say a picture's worth a thousand words, and I would say no. I would adjust that. I think I've coined this. A picture explains a thousand words because it can only illustrate what you've already said. So I think that's a, a weird statement, uh, but we get the. But what it what it does is it it um, prioritizes visuals over words, and it makes you think that reading is not good, and I just need to go see the thing, and then I'll understand. Is it, it. really prioritizing it over yes. words? A picture yes. is worth a thousand words, or is it just simply saying a picture is communicating something it, like a thousand words? It so can't, think, it listen can, to it, it again, though. Here's Isbin's quote. A thousand words leave not the same deep impression as does a single deed. See, and I would agree with what he's saying there, but he's not saying a picture is worth a thousand words. He's not. So, like, we've kind of, we're, like, we're doing, like, textual criticism of the phrase here, which is, you know, interesting, but... What I think he's getting at, because it's interesting, even if if we were to attribute our modern phrase, like current phrase, to him, a picture is worth a thousand words. For him, a picture wouldn't even mean painting or image. It would yeah. mean play. Mm -hmm. So he, as a playwright, is depicting how things happen. And that's where he actually shifted away from, like, why are we doing plays like this that, that demonstrate the facade why don't we actually have a play that teaches people how it really is, which sounds really good, but and I th but it's it's kind of just like a pivot towards that existentialism. 
Yeah. We're like, that's not how people are really experiencing life. The way you're trying to tell them life is, it's not true to them. Here's what's really true to people. What's going to resonate with them is the scandal because that's what people really dig in and deal with. That's I don't know. Re- that's really funny too because according to his own statement, the thousand words don't leave the same impression that a picture does. And so he's at one point saying, let's make a play that looks like reality. But he's also admitting that when I put out this image, it's going to have more effect than words. So he's both saying what he think is real life and at the same time, he's trying to put that impression on the audience. I don't know if he's trying to do that as, as describing intent. And let, let's just be clear. Let's just be clear. This is this is a very hmm. thanky yeah. podcast here. Like mm-hmm. in the sense that like we're just discussing this kind of off cuff. I I stumbled into this, thought it was interesting, dug like a layer, a layer down, and was like, I want to talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> and so none of us are um, theater experts, none of us are experts even in the, the, the ebbs and flows of cultural thought in the 17, 18, 1900s, okay? Who said that he coined the phrase? Because he didn't even really coin the phrase. He coined something a little different. Yeah, so and it, I just went to Google. Oh. And I, I don't know. where did, I was sitting in a coffee shop. Something was said, and I Googled and kind of went down the rabbit hole on this guy. Gotcha. But then that's where, you know, the, the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like, it's attributed to him. Yeah. But it's it's traced back through, there's like advertising that uses it and it's kind of mm-hmm. put in books. But the, the first phrase that we can like document that's similar to it would be Isbin. Huh. Sounds like somebody took what he was saying and then doctored it a little bit and- Modernized it. It became a great advertising. Yeah, it has- it has Advertising It slogan. has uh, morphed over the years if you, if you track down through it. But- here, here's you're like so what? Why are we talking about this? I just because think because when you're going to write a book, your cover has to look really good, because that picture's worth a thousand words. <laughs> Says the bookseller over here. Something like that. Sorry, I was stupid. You go ahead with what you had. I mean, it was just so so much of the time, our hearts, in the sense of our emotions, actually really mm. believe that that's true. We feel yep. like that's true. Like, well, this movie moves me in a way mm-hmm. that that book didn't. Yep. And, you know, uh, that TV show or, you know, social media, the things I'm seeing, I'm looking at all the time, move me in ways that the written text doesn't. Yeah, the Bible's boring. I need to watch a video about it. Bingo. And and actually, the reason that that is that way is maybe because we our thinking has been usurped by some some thought lines that have been present for hundreds of years that the visual is more true because I feel it yeah. than the written. And and what's what we would maybe pose to that is that feelings are real, but they're not always true, and that your feelings, your emotions can be ordered improperly. Yep. And so if it is really true for you as a believer that a picture, a movie, a song is worth more to you than a thousand words. Like you could read your Bible for hours and it doesn't affect you. But that actually is a problem. <laughs> and it's not because the one medium is more powerful than the other, but it has more to say about the ordering of your own affections. And that is an issue that has been dealt with in existentialism, 
has been dealt with in modern and pre-modernism, the way that people think about themselves for a couple hundred years, and the way that you view that issue actually does tell a lot about the, the, the health of your faith. Mm-hmm. So any other thoughts on that or we want to move on? Well, I just want to go back and say the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words, I would simply say the explains thing makes the most sense because if I put up a picture, it can't communicate all that those thousand words can. Visual images can't do that. If I already know thousand words, the picture can tie them together maybe. But it's, it's, when you say it's worth it, you're making a value judgment. And I think that's getting back to what you're saying, Charlie, is that it does make visuals more valuable than text, which it really reminds me, I think he said this already off, off air. It reminds me of Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, where we prioritize the image over the text. Totally. You know, and it, yeah, you can, you can go past the mind into the soul through images a lot easier than words. Here's the last statement I'll say is that we hear that and we, I've, I've heard preachers throw that phrase into a sermon and, and, and one, it's completely disconnected from its historical roots. But here's the take home. The, the heart of that phrase with its thinking and theology, our modern or postmodern world United States Western world thinking has wholeheartedly believed that phrase. Yep. And you see it in the way they, everybody lives their lives. And as a believer, we need to analyze that and think, you know, Mm. should it be that way? And the answer is no. Think, thinkling, think. So here's our final thought from God's word. In Psalm 31, David is writing and uh, he, it, it's a, it's a well-known psalm. And what I want to do is, I don't want to cover the whole psalm. It's, it's quite long. It's really, it's a really great psalm if you haven't studied it out. But I just want to talk about one element of it. So in this psalm, David is talking about um, some sort of a. It, there's a lot of problems. So I'm going to just start off read a little bit. Verse one says, "In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me." A speed, uh, rescue me speedily. Be the rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. In it, David's calling out for help. And there's some really intriguing stuff in here, not to, the least of which in verse 5, uh, you have into your hand I commit my spirit. I mean, the Christ quotes it on the cross. Um, but as you go down, it, it the question that the commentators are asking is, is this uh, some sort of external trouble? Like, did he need protection from enemies? Or uh, was he sick at the time? Was he ill and he needed to be healthy? Um, was he receiving false accusations? And when you look at the text, they all kind of have some merit. Um, I'm, I'm just telling you that so you have the background of this, the, the verse I'm going to get to, because I just want to point out one thought for us that I thought was helpful. If you read this psalm, he's talking about how bad things are, and he's asking God for help. Uh, in verse 6, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Uh, you've seen my affliction, he says. You know the distress of my soul. Uh, are you distressed? Are you afflicted right now, listener? Um, it, life can be very hard, and it seems like that's what he's going through right now, some sort of a big difficulty. Look in verse 9. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. And so David's having a bad day. Now that's an understatement. 
But what he said next caught me. So as you read through this, it's it's external, external, external. Uh, there's an enemy. He's sinning, or, or there's an enemy. He's sick. Sorry. Um, people are accusing him. It's it's external things. He's calling on on God to help him with. But in verse ten, he says something really uh, arresting. As you're reading, he says, "For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails." And I expected him to say, because of all these external problems. But he said, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And I thought it was interesting that in the midst of this really bad day with external challenges, he recognizes that his strength is failing, that he's sorrowful because of his sin. And it, 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 it's, it startled me and I, I started asking the question, well, which is it? Is he in great grief because of his sin, or is he in great grief because of something external? And as I was uh, reading some commentaries, uh, I found a really good quote by Charles Spurgeon on this point. And I know Spurgeon's you know, not always the greatest, but sometimes he's really good. Well, I really like this one. Uh, he says this. Uh, let's see here. I'm sorry. The salt of tears is, or excuse me, let me jump up back a little bit more. He says, grief is a sad market to spend all of our wealth in, but far more profitable trade may be driven here than in Vanity Fair. That's a reference to John Bunyan, I believe. It is better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting, Ecclesiastes 7. Black is good wear. You know, when you go to a funeral, you wear something black. The salt of tears is healthy medicine. Better spend our days sighing than in sinning. The two members of the sentence before us convey the same idea, but there's no idle words in Scripture. The reduplication is fitting expression of the fervency and importunity. My strength fails because of my iniquity. David sees to the bottom of his sorrow and detects sin lurking there. And then Spurgeon says this, and I wrote it in the column of my Bible. It is profitable trouble which leads us to trouble ourselves about our iniquity. It is profitable trouble, which leads us to trouble ourselves about our iniquity. To trouble. And I think here's what, and I've, I've heard other people say this. Sometimes the Lord allows you to go through difficulty, not because you've sinned. It's like Job. You, it's just the suffering and the trial of life. But sometimes as you go through that trouble, he does a work and he reveals some sin. Now, it's not because of the trouble you just went through. Uh, maybe your car breaks down. I'm not saying you can point to a singular sin that caused that. But sometimes when something difficult happens and you're seeking the Lord, because you're being humbled, I think he allows you to see your sin. And that is a profitable thing. I don't think that as you walk out uh, today from listening to this and going and doing whatever you're doing, you need to think, oh man, every time something bad happens, I've sinned and God's judging me. It's not what we're communicating. That's not what Scripture's communicating. But David, in the midst of a very bad external situation, saw internal sin, and he was profiting from this because he was able to address it. So as you walk through the suffering of life, that's just generic, that just happens because we live in a sin-cursed world, pay attention to your heart, and perhaps God will be merciful and let you too see the profit of your trouble that you can see your iniquity.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.